If you would, please turn in your Bible to Psalm 66. The entire psalm is also printed there on pages 5 and 6 in the bulletin. Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. You may be seated. And as you do so, let us once again turn to the Lord and ask him to help us understand his word together. God, we come this morning to give you praise. You are great. Your deeds are indeed awesome. We have tasted them. We have experienced them. And now as we come to your word, a, a psalm that calls us to give you praise, to give you thanks, because you answer prayer. God, may our hearts be filled with gratitude and with worship. May our desire be to give you the glory that you are due. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. How do you, or what is your typical response to answered prayer? Now before you answer too quickly, take a moment to genuinely consider this question. What is your typical reaction when God answers your prayers? How about the prayers of us as a local church, or even the prayers of the church universal? Because the truth of the matter is, our prayers are answered all the time. God is that good to his people to answer their prayers. Regardless of what the particular answer may be, God is always faithful to respond to the prayers, the petitions of his people. While this is certainly a comforting truth, something we can and should firmly stand and rest upon, we can easily become complacent. We often take for granted the simple yet profound truth that God does answer our prayers. And when this happens, our response is not what it should be. Instead of offering our praise, we simply roll right along to the next prayer. We check off the box of prayer answered 
and then move on to whatever our next need might be. Instead of declaring genuine thanks, we give it rather minimal attention, if any at all. Maybe we offer a half-hearted thanks or great. Instead of worshiping God, we tend to think that he is somehow obligated to answer us. It is simply par for the course. God has answered our prayers before. He's going to do it again. Psalm 66, though, invites us to respond differently to God's answered prayer. It encourages us to even make this song our own as we taste the goodness of God in answering our prayers. By the end of the psalm, as we get to verse 20, the psalm is also almost begging us to join in with verse 20. Blessed be God because he has not rejected our prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. It's to give God praise, to glory in his faithful answer to our prayers. Praise should be the response from every single one of us, for every single one of us has experienced, in one way, shape, or form, God's answer to our prayers. It doesn't matter what season we may find ourselves in right now, God has and is answering our prayers. Now, no one knows for sure what the exact context of Psalm 66 is. There's no title or inscription besides a song, a psalm. Some scholars want to link it to King Hezekiah because it seems to highlight both, both an individual prayer of deliverance that was offered and a corporate prayer of deliverance that God has answered in both cases. And if you are familiar with Hezekiah, in 2 Kings 19, Jerusalem and Hezekiah the king faced an incoming Assyrian invasion. The city was surrounded. The southern kingdom stood no chance of victory. And so Hezekiah prayed, O Lord our God, save us please from his hand. And God answered Hezekiah by sending the prophet Isaiah with a word of promise and also a handheld delivery of 185,000 Assyrians being killed overnight by God's own hand. It thereby squashed any desire they had to invade Jerusalem. So it's very possible that Psalm 66 could be King Hezekiah's prayer as the Assyrian army is walking away with their tail between their legs, never to come again to the southern kingdom. But that's not necessary. There doesn't have to be a specific occasion for this song. It is generic enough that it can apply to all of God's covenant people in all times and all places. The Israelites could have sung this as they were wandering around in the wilderness or actively claiming the promised land. It may have been heard as the people came together to celebrate Passover or any other festal gathering, proclaiming God's faithfulness to his people. It could have been sung at the height of David's reign, when Israel took the, took the land and sat in a prominent position of power. Or it could even have been sung as they returned to exile, from exile, at their lowest. And it certainly has been sung by New Testament saints past and present, who have seen and heard God's answer to their prayers. So it invites us then to join in the song, to not hold back from worshiping our God who continues to faithfully answer both our most desperate and even our most mundane cries for his help. Joyful praise is the natural response to God's faithfulness in answering the prayers of his people. 
Now, I made some last-minute tweaks to the outline, so the one printed in the bulletin needs some updating. The points are still three, but they're first we see public praise, then we see particular worship, and then personal worship. It's public praise, particular worship, personal worship. And these reflect, as we were reading, the movement of the psalm, where it starts with this universal praise and then slowly moves deeper and deeper into one particular person's individual praise for God answering his prayer. And the psalm begins with public praise in verses 1 through 4. Psalm 66 opens with a collective call for all of creation to sing the glory of God. The psalmist says, shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Such a call is common throughout all of the psalms. Let me just list a few. Psalm 19 opens, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Creation cannot help but praise its creator. Psalm 96, 97 declares, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. The king is worthy to be praised. And the, psalm, the, the book of Psalms closes in Psalm 50 with a call, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Everyone and everything is called upon to come, to sing, to glory in God the creator. And so Psalm 66 falls right in line with many of the others. It tells us that God is worthy to be praised simply because he is God. Notice how before there's any mention of what he has done, the emphasis is on who God is, his name. Sing the glory of his name. In the Old Testament, God's name is intimately linked with his character. God revealed Moses his name. And what did he tell him? I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. We observe here in this universal call to worship that we are, God is worthy of our praise simply because of who he is. He deserves the praise of every creature on account of his name alone. His name is already glorious. It has weightiness to it. There is honor that is already attached to it. And so all creation, as we sang this morning, is called to come and to acknowledge it, to declare it, to shout it out for all to hear. Praise is due to God because he is God. Now, Scripture certainly teaches that it's also right to praise God for what he has done. But it's also equally emphatic that God is to be worshipped simply because of who he is. He is the glorious one. He is the eternal God. He is highly exalted. We need not wait until God does something to our benefit to sing his praises. The simple fact that he is God should be enough for us to open our mouths in glorious praise. For this is what we are created for. As our confession says, our chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All men and women and children are called then to praise God for being God. But the psalmist also then goes further and adds that God is proven. His works can't be missed. 
He says in verse 3, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing. The awesome deeds of God are not isolated only to the watchful eye of his people. They are and have been on display for all to see. Paul says this in Romans 1 verse 20, where he says the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. No one can claim ignorance to the awesome deeds of God. Creation is filled with them. History is a detailed account of them. And the testimony of God's people from the very beginning is filled with them. Take the Exodus, for example, which the psalmist likely alludes to in verse 6. It was certainly an awesome deed for Israel. They crossed the sea on dry land. They watched their enemies drown as the waters came back over them. For the Old Testament of people of God, this was the awesome deeds, if you will, to end all awesome deeds. It's the one they would constantly point back to, to remember. But remember, the Egyptians also saw and felt this awesome deed. The Canaanite nations heard about this awesome deed. Rahab, as she's housing the spies, confesses to them, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. The display of God's power before the nations leads to fear and either a willful or a reluctant obedience. Every knee will bow one way or another. That's that picture of the enemies coming cringing before him. And the awesome deeds of the Lord have not ceased. His enemies continue to come cringing to him on a regular occurrence. For anywhere that we witness people liberated from bondage, whether physical or spiritual, creation sees an awesome deed of the Lord. Anywhere we see the light of Christ pushing back the darkness around us, creation sees the awesome deeds of the Lord. And anywhere we observe the power and the goodness of God, creation sees the awesome deeds of the Lord. And we, as the people of God, should be at the forefront to answer this call. We should be the ones inviting all creation to join in with us. We should be offering those initial shouts of joy and songs of praise. And we should be directing the gaze of our friends, of our neighbors, anyone and everyone we meet to the awesome deeds of the Lord on display day in and day out. We should desire to see the fulfillment of verse 4, here and now, where all the earth worships you, singing praises to you, singing praises to his name. May the praises of God be heard from our lips, first and foremost, especially in a day where it's far too easy to complain and to grumble. We should be singing his praises. May we join all creation singing glory, singing to the glory of his name and giving him the praise that he is due. But after this, this call to worship, this very public call, the psalmist moves even, even deeper into particular worship in verses 5 through 12. 
he now moves and calls the people of God to praise God together for his great works displayed for them. He says, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Come and see is an open invitation. A similar one is given in Psalm 46, a very famous psalm, where it says, come and behold the works of the Lord. And again, it carries the idea that even the wicked are invited to observe God's awesome deeds, his might and his power on display. But the psalmist here goes even one step further, considering verse 7. Well, just in that verse, he reminds us that the awesome deeds of the Lord remind all people of two things. The first is that God is not ignorant or silent to the raging nations. He is keeping watch. He is ready to intervene in power as he sees fit, which encourages us to pray, but also encourages us to trust. But the second reminder is that God is the exalted one, not man. He expects humility before him. And he will humble those who exalt themselves, whether they be kings or rulers or ordinary citizens. So the awesome deeds of the Lord are a call for all people everywhere to humble themselves before the Lord who rules and reigns over all things. But in verses 8 through 12, we see there's, there's a more pressing issue for the people of God. There's a call for them to praise God as they remember his works in and amongst them. And these works, without saying it explicitly, point to their prayers and his faithfulness to answer them. The first work we see is preserving. God has kept his people. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. The psalmist is not shy here. Life in Israel has not been a cakewalk. It has been filled with trial and suffering. Even for the people of God. Now granted, much of this trial and suffering was their own fault. For their open sin and rebellion and idolatry. Yet still, God did not consume them. He preserved them. Instead of consuming them, he tried them. He tested them. He refined them. This picture is, is, is meant to instill in our minds this picture of purification and discipline. God actively puts his people through intense heat for the purpose of preserving them and purifying them. And even this is an answer to their prayers. I think of John Newton's hymn, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, where it's the story of such a prayer where he asked the Lord, I want to grow. I want to grow deeper in my faith. I want to love you more. And he expects God to just kind of hit him over the head with this great swell of love and, and affection for God. And instead, there's this struggle of back and forth, and he's like, I, I, I'm experiencing trouble. What is going on here? And in the sixth stanza, stanza, he says to God, Lord, why is this? I trembling cry. Will thou pursue thy, pursue thy worm to death? And tis in this way, the Lord reply, I answer prayer for grace and faith. And God does that same work of preserving by purifying and testing us today. He answers prayers to keep us, to hold us, 
by refining us, even by sending us into the heat, not to consume us, but to purify us. And such refining is a glorious thing. It's a thing we can celebrate and praise God for. But the second work that we see the psalmist draw our attention to is God's work of deliverance. He goes on in verse 11, You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. In a way, these verses are are vivid without being specific, if that makes sense. They depict nearly every single difficulty the people of God faced. They knew the net, imprisonment. They tasted crushing burdens of enslavement and oppression in Egypt, in Babylon, and at various other times. They had firsthand experience of being conquered by other nations whose men rode over their heads. You can hear Israel joining the likes of James Taylor to saying, I have been through fire I've seen fire and I've seen rain. And in each and every one, the Lord has proven faithful to his promise that he gave Isaiah. In Isaiah 43, where he says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. God faithfully walked with his people through fire and water. The epitome of hardship. He walked them through to the other side. That place of abundance. Which should automatically draw our minds to the promised land. That abundant place of flowing with milk and honey. But it should also draw our attention to Psalm 23.5. Where the psalmist says, my cup overflows. It's the same word. God has brought his people by delivering them to a place of overflowing. God did not merely deliver his people, but he restored them and he blessed them. And this is our story. This is the story of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ is the culmination of the awesome deeds of the Lord. Because in Christ, as Tim has been walking us through just a couple weeks ago, we are being preserved. And we will be preserved. Yes, we will be tested. Even disciplined as sons, as Hebrews 12 tells us. But God will sustain us in Jesus Christ. But even greater still, in Christ we have been delivered and restored. As we heard last week, we are not who we once were. We are new creations in Christ. And as new creations, we are patiently awaiting the day when Christ will fully and finally bring us out to a place, that place of abundance, in the presence of God forever. So Psalm 66 is the song of the redeemed in Christ. It is the particular praise of the people who delight in the God who answers their prayers. None greater than, Lord, save me, a sinner. He has answered. And so I want to take a minute here just to do a a quick little evaluation, if you will, of what God has done for us as a people just in this past year. 
Since March 13th, I think it's roughly the date, 2020, when everything changed, we have been praying for God to do a work almost every Sunday, right here, as one of our elders is leading us in prayer. We have asked God to preserve us, even to deliver us from something as crazy and very oddly specific as a pandemic. And yes, we are still wearing masks, which yes, everyone still hates. And we will continue to pray that God will deliver us and enable us to come to a day when maybe we can gather up there by the bonfire and use our masks as kindling and celebrate and sing of the deliverance of the Lord. <laughs> but even with masks on, there is still much to praise and sing to God about. The blue tape is gone. It's been gone for weeks. That registration system that was both weird and annoying, that's gone too. The pews are filling up. Rows are full. The nursery is open. Sunday school is going to open in a month. Compare this to last year when on this Sunday, Mother's Day Sunday, I think, Tim, there was eight of us here. We, had, we, we, we were up to the cameras, but it was better than an iPhone. But there was eight of us here worshiping the Lord. The rest of you were at home. Now we're here together. Come and see what God has done. But we also pray that our fellowship and that our unity would grow despite these massive changes. We pleaded for God to preserve our bonds of love. And God has answered. People are lingering after the service on Sunday. They're not quick to get home to their meals, to whatever it is they're going about their Sunday. They want to spend time together to visit. The grassy knoll that I, that I have, I guess I've coined it, right outside the door, has become a place where our covenant children run around and laugh and roll around in the grass and my girls put grass in their hair. But it's a beautiful thing to see. It's a testament to God's faithfulness to answer our prayers. Our small groups, they're not perfect, but they're finding ways to get together. My group in particular has found the church parking lot as this ideal, perfect, beautiful place where we can gather and our kids can bike and scooter as we visit and share. And other groups are doing similar things. Sure, things remain far from perfect, far from ideal. We would love to see all the old ministries back up and rolling. But God has still answered our prayers. He's building, fostering community in our midst. Come and see what God has done. And on top of that, we've seen physical healings in our body. We've seen more covenant children born. We've welcomed new members, and we've even seen some of them jump right in, headfirst, in the midst of a pandemic, into the community here at our church. Yes, we still have our flaws. Yes, God is still at work to refine us, to test us. We have much room to grow. There will be nets, burdens, and tramplings that could come. And there will certainly be days, as there have been days, of sorrow, hardship, and struggle ahead. But we will never be void of reasons to declare to one another and to the world outside to come and to see what God has done. God has and continues to answer our prayers. And so we will continue to plead from this spot every Sunday for God to answer our prayers. So let us respond by being faithful to worship him and to give him thanks.
And finally, in this psalm, we see that it culminates in the psalmist's personal worship. We see this in verses 13 through 20. The psalmist ends with a more intimate expression of his praise to God. And note how this personal worship, it takes place in the corporate setting. The psalmist is not alone in his room, in his closet. He's not off somewhere in nature soaking in the goodness of the Lord, which there is a time and a place for that. The Lord's answer to his prayers draws him into the house of the Lord. Answered prayer invites him to come and to join the company of God's people. It supplies him with this eagerness, this zeal to add his own voice, to sing of God's personal deliverance in the company of God's corporate deliverance. And so there's a challenge for us that we might be faithful to have the same eagerness and zeal as we come together, to be ready to add our voices for the individual prayers God has answered on top of all those prayers I just went through. But the psalmist starts with his personal worship and this sacrificial worship in verses 13 through 15. He mentions burnt offerings, vows, sacrifices, fattened animals. He even mentions the smoke of the sacrifice of the rams, which I believe Tim and JC are probably licking their lips over the thought of smoked meats. But these all express ideas of formal worship. We don't have the time to look at each one, but they come from the Old Testament law. And we could quickly summarize that this is a picture of the best of the best. The animals listed are top quality. There's bulls, there's goats, there's rams. The portions that are listed are the best portions of these animals. Simply put, the psalmist has not forgotten where his deliverance has come from. Who has been the one to answer? And so he goes directly to that place with the best of his stuff and praises God. He offers genuine, heartfelt, even sacrificial worship. That's the kind of worship that's emphasized here. He's offered the best, God has offered the best that the psalmist can possibly give. Nothing is withheld. God has given what he is due. And we see that worship can be a little bit costly to us because it involves sacrifice. No, we're not called, and thankfully we're not called anymore to bring such sacrifices of meats and and fat portions because Christ is our sacrificial lamb. He is the best of the best. But we are still called to worship as we confess this morning by loving God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And this kind of worship, it costs a little bit because it's self-sacrificial. And the truth of the matter is we love ourselves with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. So when we come in to worship, we're called to leave that aside. But it's a high cost that we should be eager and most willing to pay. But in the company of God's people, the psalmist, though, also joyfully recounts what the Lord has done for him in particular. He offers another invitation. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. You could picture the psalmist entering the temple, entering the doors, and as soon as he gets there... He echoes this call because he can't keep it to himself. He must share what the Lord has done for him. And he, 
he, he gives the whole picture. He shares his anguish that he was in the midst of. He hints at the prayer that's both a mix of desperation and hope. He even acknowledges that there's sin in him that he has to deal with before bringing this to the Lord. Sin that he must hate, that he must mortify, as we are called to every time we come to worship. And verse 19 is the psalmist's resounding declaration of faith, but God truly has answered. He has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. On this verse, Matthew Henry challenges us, where he says, We should take all occasions to tell one another of the great and kind things which God has blessed us in the heavenly things. These we should be most affected with ourselves. And therefore, with these, we should be desirous to affect others. Brothers and sisters, there are countless members among us who have such declarations to make. God has answered prayers for healing. He has answered prayers for deliverance. He has answered prayers for provision. And he's truly listened to those prayers. I think specifically of our brother Roger, who continues to be here this morning, who if you have not had the opportunity to hear both his physical battle with COVID and the spiritual wrestling while he was in the midst of it, I would encourage you to seek Roger out. He eagerly shared at Bible study just a few months ago, and I believe I can confidently say he'd be eager to share again of what the Lord has done. And Roger is not the only one eager and ready to share joyfully together each and every worship Sunday of what God has done. Such an invitation to come and hear is one of the reasons why we gather each and every Sabbath together. Yes, we for sure come to celebrate God's deliverance in Christ Jesus. We come to celebrate all the deeds that God has done, included the specific ones he has worked in our lives. Because they point to our God who is faithful to answer prayer. They add greater joy to all of our worship together. They stir all of our hearts to what we just sang, more love to thee, O Christ. And they call us, where contrary to what we normally do, which is boasting in ourselves, to recount and to hear others recount so that we might boast in the Lord. The truth of the matter is we have more than enough answered prayer to boast in the Lord all the day long. We could lock the doors, we're not going to, and just stay here all day and recount what the Lord has done to us. Maybe we should do that someday. Won't be this day. But what a benefit it would be for us to simply tell one another what God is doing, what he has done, how he has been faithful. We should be eager to share we should be eager to praise God. We should be calling to one another. Come and hear all you who fear the Lord, and I will tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. Such telling glorifies God. It sings the glory of his name. It stirs our individual hearts. It stirs our corporate heart with affection and praise for him. And as the psalmist closes, it also assures us that God's steadfast love is just that steadfast it will not cease it will not be shaken it will not end 
Because each and every time God answers our prayers, which is daily, he confirms his steadfast love to us. In summary of this psalm, one commentator writes, what we win by prayer, by, yeah, what we win by prayer, we must wear with praise. Mercies in answer to prayer in a special manner oblige us to be thankful. Are you wearing the prayer, the praise of what you have won in prayer? Are you thankful for God's answer to your prayer? We're back to our opening question. How are you responding to God's faithfulness to answer your prayers? Or maybe the question is, are you even praying? I must admit, that's the question that echoed loudest to me as I prepared for this. Because God is faithfully answering my personal prayers, my family's personal prayers, and even my ministry prayers, despite my unfaithfulness to ask how gracious and how kind is our God to do that? And brothers and sisters, it is easy for us to complain. It is easy for us to forget what God has done, especially as we look at the culture around us. But Psalm 66 invites us to stop. And before we get to complaining and grumbling, to stop and remember. To invite us to be thankful it calls us to worship God for who he is and what he has and continues to do. And so let us then call and invite one another to come and see what God has done and to come and hear and to tell each other what God has done for our souls. Joyful praise is the natural response to God's faithfulness in answering the prayers of his people. Let us pray. God, we give you praise. You have been faithful. You have answered the prayers that we have uttered. God, you have answered the prayers that we have been silent about as well. How good and how gracious are you. How kind you are to us. How great is your steadfast love. God, forgive us for being unfaithful in prayer. Forgive us for being unfaithful in worship and thanks. But we give you praise that you have delivered us in Christ that you continue to preserve us and you will deliver us fully in Christ. And so may we then be faithful to invite any and all to come and to see and to come and to hear what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And may your name be glorified, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.